0: Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. This episode is from our monthly morning prayer, hosted by Shane Claiborne and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Each month, we unite our hearts together in prayer using Common Prayer, a liturgy for ordinary radicals, and we pause for a little time of reflection. Thank you for joining us.
1: Amen. Well, this is, we always pause in our morning office to have prayers for others at this point. And this is where we usually pause on the first of the month to have a conversation. So we're delighted to have uh, you with us, Richard, and uh, to talk about marriage and singleness and kind of all the vocations that we can find ourselves within the family of God. You know, we're out of this evangelical stream and you're a Franciscan brother in in the Catholic stream. And we've got all these streams that bring us together. You know, I was thinking as we were praying, here just about the lament that flows through much of this prayer this morning. It, uh, it's one I share as I think about the, the witness that the church has to offer in terms of, uh, you know, helping folks live in the fullness of life in our bodies and in our sexuality. I mean, there's just so much to grieve about the, um, the abuses of that in in our churches. So maybe we should start by saying, you know, the church has wisdom and traditions to speak to all these things. But a lot of folks in the world today are asked, why would anybody listen to it? <laughs> So maybe uh, why should we still listen to the wisdom the church has about our vocations?
2: Well, that's well said. We better name the shadow first because the shadow side has shown itself uh, from our over certitude. It seems to me uh, that... I, I've said this often, but you would think if there were any religion that would have a positive theology of embodiment, it would be Christianity, where mm-hmm. it became flesh. And yet, we, we pretty much represented the usual biases against physicality, embodiment, reflecting most cultures. For some reason, people think the body holds impurity and unworthiness, sin. and Yeah, it does, but it doesn't either. It's also the holding place for the soul. Glory of God. So um, we have yet, in any broad way, produce a, a really good theology of sexuality. And our overemphasis on celibacy, clergy has has just done a lot of damage because it still gave people the bias that if you were really holy, you wouldn't have sex. When it's clear this is the way God continues the human race. But again, we we weren't biased toward creating a, a positive theology of of sexuality. Mm. Uh, But it's still coming. It really is. It's creeping out in good teachers and good writers and good family men like you. So we're going to get there, but it's slow, slow coming. And it's Mm -hmm. not just Christianity. Uh, As I preached around the world, Mm -hmm. I mean, in in Hinduism and Buddhism, Mm -hmm. in Judaism, believe it or not, um, there's still this idea of impurity is not held by the soul, but by the body. Mm-hmm. So I've often said quoting one of my teachers, Plato seems to have influenced Christianity more than Jesus. a shocking <laughs> statement that uh, <laughs> as you know, Plato, body and soul were enemy. Mm-hmm. and we're very platonic. Je- that's not true in Jesus. And Jesus comes out the wisdom figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they reveal one another. they en- encapsulate one another. So uh, tell us where
1: you where do you see Jesus showing up today to kind of give us a vision of what this can look like?
2: What would he well let me tell you what I, I think is the positive track own sexuality or or celibacy. Of course, for us, it was always, well, Jesus was celibate, seemingly Paul was celibate, so Mm. that's the higher way. Here is the perhaps good meaning of that we we always thought that our free choice of celibacy would allow a blessing upon people who who chose singleness as a vocation, either by necessity, by frankly, you know, they were handicapped or they weren't that attractive or uh, they were perceived As a a marginalized group. No one ever chose them for love. So we were supposed to be a witness that you can have. Love, even passionate love of God, without genital expression. We're taught to distinguish genitality from sexuality. We're all sexual. I'm sexual too, in terms of the energy of the, the genders, beautiful and enlivening. But you can experience that that life-giving energy without genital expression. It takes some work, but uh, that was the ideal scenario. How much it's really happened I, in my observation after 50 years of giving retreats around the world, it happens more among nuns than it does among monks and friars and priests. Hmm. Males have a harder time living a healthy sexuality, for whatever reason. But I find an awful lot of women, and I'm sure you've met some of them, are just beautiful, generative souls. Uh, they can touch, they can kiss, they can hold children and people when they're suffering, and they, they're, they're able to express that embodiment. But we sort of Mark.
0: I, I think of, uh, you know, even the scripture that we read this morning from Mark, this voice from God, I, you know, you are my son whom I love and I am well pleased that I, I kind of remember Rich Mullins was, you know, a wonderful singer and songwriter uh, who never married. He really wrestled with, uh, you know, with sexuality and a lot of different things. But he, he he used to say, once you know that you're loved, everything else gets just a little bit easier. <laughs> And and I think that's one of the things that, you know, in all of our conversation around sexuality, I think sometimes we miss that core, that core truth that more than sex, we need love. And you can have a lot of right. sex and not feel loved and you can right. live a celibate life and, and still feel love and community very deeply. And and That's so right. you know, that belonging and community is something that we're all kind of uh, needing, no matter whether we're single or married or LGBTQ or, you know, whatever we identify as sexually, we're all called to to love and be loved and to find some type of community that, that allows that to flourish. Right,
2: Richard? I- can't improve on that you're <laughs> Well, you,
0: you really helped me through this you know when i was i was wrestling i was in a year commitment of singleness and i oh, yeah. went on a retreat and i got to call you and it, yeah. you know talk through it a little bit but i you know i think there's a lot of folks that there's so much pressure on people to get married especially yes. in the protestant tradition i mean it's like yeah. I, I can remember children's sermons where we prayed that every person would find their spouse you know and we were we were taught to pray for the person we'll marry before we meet them <laughs>
2: you know and you're like, wow this is this goes Which is beautiful, but it does create an (laughs) unnecessary expectation, even urgency. Yeah, yeah, that's true.
1: I appreciated what you were saying about um, what we can learn from sisters who lived in community. It it reminded me of when I first visited uh, St. Benedict's, the community in Minnesota, which was at one time, uh, mid-20th century, the largest religious community in the country. Uh, I think they had some 1,500 members. I, I first visited them in the early 2000s, and so many of the people who had joined then were in their 70s and 80s. And, And I began sort of listening to their stories and realizing that, you know, within 20th century American gender norms, these were all very gifted and talented women who had basically faced a choice. Were they going to um, marry and become housewives, or were they going to join this community and pursue their their vocation as artists and teachers and scientists? And and they had all found their way to a place where they really were able to affirm one another in vocations that kind of pushed against the the gender norms that they had been born into in this culture. And it, it just seemed to me to be a beautiful witness of how at its best, celibacy in community can create um, the, the possibility for a kind of witness to the otherwise.
2: Well said. I've seen it so much. It can work. Uh, I, I've uh, So many young people have come to me in the Catholic tradition, uh, discerning celibacy. Let's see if I remember my three rules. And I don't know they're really, but there's the three I came up with. I think you have to have experienced some tactile love. In your parenting years if you if you if your skin hunger was never satisfied even as a little boy or a little girl the need is voracious you know hmm. uh, secondly i think you have to have had the beginnings of an affective aff love of god uh, the the love affair with god can't be all in the head you know you, you have to really love God from your heart and feel it so it fills you up. And you're not, you know, mm-hmm. thinking lustful thoughts all day. Thirdly, you, um, you have to have a ministry or a job that allows you to have a love object. Again, mm-hmm. sisters had that so often with teaching children in the schools or patients in the hospitals. Uh, It must be very hard, I would think, for a a librarian Mm. who never maybe connects with people or has a chance to love people, to live a fully creative celibacy. Now, I'm sure it's possible. In fact, I know a few, so I'm counteracting my own principle. But in general, those three are true. Mm. There has to be a love object in your life, uh, a real caring for something or somebody, it can't all be an abstraction up yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, and when those three are are found in a life, celibacy is possible creatively. Yeah. But I bet I could also say, marriage is possible <laughs> creatively. You know, so uh,
0: yeah, I've told yeah. I've told a lot of folks that have been discerning this themselves. You know that it, it, there's an a lot of wisdom in the old idea that you're, if you're not comfortable being alone, you might be dangerous to be married to. And if you're not comfortable, yes, yes. you know, committing to someone, then you might be hiding in your aloneness, you know, there's, so there's something to be
2: ditto, at peace, with
0: whatever the spirit gives us.
2: I totally agree. Thank you.
0: It's, it's funny to me, you know, as we're talking about this, you're, you're a Franciscan, uh, you know, St. Francis really abandoned everything with this reckless love of God, you know, and, and it's, it's like that, um, as Kierkegaard said, the one thing, you know, that's worth giving our life to, the one love that's worth leaving all other loves for, or as Jesus talked about, the pearl, you know, that's so precious. So it's that kind of deep longing for God that I think um, so many folks in in a a lot of times a a celibate uh, vocation have shown us, you know, Mother Teresa notoriously, when she was interviewed, uh, I don't know if you saw this little, it was captured in a documentary, Richard, but this reporter, I don't know why he asked her, but he he said, uh, are you married? And, and, and she said, just instinctively, she said, uh, I am in love. And my spouse can be so demanding sometimes.
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) Of course,
0: talking of Jesus, you know. Of course, of course. That which, you know, I I think she, some of our Protestant friends, you know, they had this idea that Catholics don't believe in a personal relationship with Jesus. And I said, it doesn't get much more personal than that. (laughs) You know, Mother (laughs) Teresa called Jesus her lover.
2: (laughs) She did have creative responses. Came from a deep place. Yeah, but I had never heard that one. Thank you. When she also,
0: ha- she didn't always feel that, that, oh, uh, you know, she oh. had, she also had, um you know, that, that long loneliness that Dorothy Day spoke of. So, uh, you know, um and, and sometimes you, you feel that even in a marriage or family, you don't always sure you feel. Don't. So, so I think it's, you know, regardless of our vocation, you can, There's times that you can feel lonely and longing for love, and there's times that you can just experience it so deeply.
2: Well said. Well said. Yeah, the goal is intimacy with life, with reality, with everything. Uh, And we call that intimacy with God, and it is. I don't know which comes first, which leads to the other, but uh, that's the goal.
0: I was telling you earlier, Richard. I don't know, Jonathan, if you've read this, but I just uh, finished the uh, the new encyclical from Pope Francis. You know, Fratelli Tutti, and mm-hmm. um, and and he talks a lot about um, this this belonging, this love, you know, um, for for all people. And um, I don't know if you. If you have any other reflections on that, Richard, we talked a lot about the, the first encyclical he did, but this one really is about that kind of connection that we feel with other people, with people that are struggling and has a lot to offer us. He's trying, it
2: seems, and I haven't studied it in depth yet, but to introduce the idea of social love and that we've made it too much an individual thing and critiques uh, neoliberalism, as he calls it, because it's so individualistic, and there's no social love there. Just the enlightenment or the success of the individual person, and. Mm. See, sophisticated Western society going in that direction, all about me being better than you, more healed, more happy, more more, uh, successful, more therapeutically healed. That's the language that dominates our sophisticated society Mm -hmm. and he's saying that isn't social love. It's not going to save the world. Intuitively understand that. Thank. You. Oh, thank you,
0: Doctor. C- you know Cornell West when he says that tenderness is what love looks like in private, and justice is what love looks like in public. Wow. I think of that. Very yeah. good.
2: Very good.
0: Yeah. I
1: wonder what um, counsel you would give to you know as folks are figuring out our vocation in terms of our you know personal sexuality, our our life in community, our life in family. I think within the sort of you know neoliberal mm-hmm. imagination that. we've all kind of grown up in and is so assumed in our world those often seem like kind of private or personal discernment issues Um, but what counsel would you offer in terms of like how that connects to our work for justice in the world our work for a better world for everyone I mean how how are these things related I know you've you've had a lifetime of experience walking with folks from you know New Jerusalem to where you are now and and helping people connect to that kind of contemplative and personal side of life with the justice side?
2: You know, uh, it isn't easy. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let me start with that, because we're naturally individualists. We don't understand Paul's metaphor of the body. You know, the eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. We more or less think we do not need one another. This private notion of salvation, and as I've said in a later book, even our private notion of evil, have, in my judgment, and that's all it is, have done more to undermine the gospel than almost anything I can think of. You know, I am good by your goodness. Uh, I, I'm, I am evil by your complicity in evil. Mm. And, and we're all in this together, pulling one another down, pulling one another up. So if you've never seen the mystery of life that way, it's a big turnaround. It's a big, uh, unless a single grain of wheat diet remains just a single grain. And um, our, our great Western temptation, because we have all these tools for individuation, for self-growth, for critique. You know, uh, we just, we're not sure we need family or community Hmm. or friendship just to choose three classic word, or marriage. All of the elements of social love are, no, just become whole myself. And we contributed to that by making salvation a private decision for Jesus Christ. And we weren't taking our brothers and sisters along with us. So this is, we're still in baby Christianity, in my opinion. We, we got a lot of growing up to do, to realize the body of Christ. The, the horizontal uh, bar of the cross, you two marvelously, intuitively seem to understand this, but It's not typical. It's not typical, even among otherwise enlightened people or aware people. So that doesn't mean God doesn't love them. But the mandate, the invitation to love others the way God loves you isn't hasn't been made as clear Mm -hmm. in all of our denominations, it seems to me.
0: I think one 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 other kind of aspect of this that I'd love to hear you. Speak a little bit about Richard is is the idea of covenant, submission to the church. This this idea that we're immersed in a larger body, we're accountable to that, and and um, and and it, it it seems that there's a lot of folks that uh, we we're reluctant to to covenant, you know, to make a commitment to people or to a community. But that's that's been a really big part of our our story and and what's held the church together and, and a theme that we see all through scripture, right, is to, to covenant with one another. So I don't know if you have, have some some thoughts on that. I mean, you've, you've spent your life covenanted to a particular community with particular yeah. vows, and that's yeah. something beautiful.
2: Yeah. You know, I've just in the last years, and I strongly believe it. Uh, you, it doesn't need to make perfect sense to you or anybody, but I think what's called... <laughs> What's called the the Old Covenant, our Old Testament, is a, a love that is retributive, quid pro quo, tit for tat. You do this much evil, you deserve this much punishment, you know. And I, I'm convinced, and I think I could make the biblical case, that the new and everlasting covenant is what we now call restorative justice. And the trouble yeah. with the prophets is... They start almost all of them start with retributive justice, haranguing us and, uh, you know, God threatening us and uh, with hellfire or whatever punishment. But uh, I asked Brueggemann once about this, and I said, Could you make the case? That every prophet, in his own writing, some clearer than other—Ezekiel, uh, Hosea, Habakkuk—would be clearer. They move from retributive justice to restorative justice, hmm. and that, for me, is the movement from the Old Testament uh, or the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And hmm. in that sense, a large—if that's got any truth to it—a large percentage of, of Christians are are still in the Old Covenant, <laughs> looking for uh, meritocracy democracies, looking for worthiness, looking for guilt and shame. And, and uh, it, as you guys know, it doesn't get you anywhere. It really doesn't. And we Catholics still haven't learned that. <laughs> uh, so try it on for size and, and see if it fits your reading of scripture. That's mm. beautiful. I, I find it especially, of course, in Jeremiah 31 and uh, a new covenant, a new way of describing reality that is not meritocracy. That is not quid pro quo, but that is infinite love. Mm. And the human mind just cannot imagine that. Cannot.
1: I know you you know from spiritual direction that for a lot of people this turn to the restorative happens when they face their own personal crisis. That's and, right. uh, I, That's wonder, right. That's I wonder I right. wonder if there's a way in which a, a a collective crisis can also lead us to <laughs> this vision for restorative justice. I mean, uh, you know how how bad do things have to get before together of we course. want something restorative and not just you know the justice that rains down judgment on those who are wrong.
2: That has. been... I hope still one of the graces from this pandemic, Mm. we are now in something globally together at the same time. And it's not being granted to the unworthy or the sinners or the Mm -hmm. Hindus. It's all of us, all of Mm. us, all of us suffering evil pandemic is now a shared phenomenon. Mm. There's a lot for us to learn there.
0: Yeah, I think it was last year that we said during Lent, you know, this season before Easter that we're in right now, we said this is the Lent uh, uh, of all Lents, you know, it's like Lent on steroids. Yeah. But the isolation, or, or at least the physical distance from people, creates a new longing for Community and I mean, people just are like, man, I want to go to a coffee shop. I want to worship again in a church. You know, I want to see people, touch people, hug people. So yeah. I think there there is a piece of that, you know, but also the solidarity that Jonathan and you are talking of. I think that we kind of feel a, a common grief and a, a common um, crisis around the pandemic, but also I think the racial justice work,
2: so much of the other work that we're all part of. That
0: there's a there's a groaning of creation. <laughs>
2: there, <laughs> there is. There gro- is. That's not pie-eyed optimism or something. It's revealing itself in so many people. But the cost has been and continues to be great, doesn't it? But who would have thought last March... Mm. we will be in it this March.
1: Huh? I remember yes. last March. Our, we have three kids. Our kids, um, you know, came home from school and it's. They said, you know, we're, we're going to take three weeks off of school, three weeks, to try to address this crisis. And everybody in the community thought, oh my goodness, what are we going to do for three weeks? <laughs> now it's been a
2: year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah well and it also surfaces some of our our own individualism right like i, I the, the idea that folks don't want to wear a mask because they have a right not to wear a mask you know and, and uh, it's it's uh if you if if you are upset about wearing a mask you're really not going to like the cross that jesus says we're to carry <laughs> you know but I, you know there's folks that have this resistance uh, mm. that that kind of sacrifice or solidarity so hopefully we can We can do better.
2: The mask is a a paramount metaphor for our individualism, only seeing it from our side.
0: Hmm. Before we pivot back, we want to make sure you folks know how to continue to stay in touch with you, Richard. It's been a gift to have you with us, folks tuning in. This is our... Our dear friend, Richard Rohr, who has done more to support red-letter Christians than nearly anybody I can think of in prayer and just by everything you've done. And you model Christ-centered uh, Christianity that many of us are longing to be be faithful to, brother. So um, we're grateful for you. you got so many books. I, I'll bust out an old one here, Jonathan. Wild right. Man to Wise Man was one oh, of the first a little... and yeah. I give And I give it away to all the wild men that I uh, know. <laughs> all right. And I've done the men's rites of passage that Richard's done and, and been out there to the living school and, uh, his newest books, uh, uh the cosmic Christ divine dance are just all so wonderful. So t- tell us a little more, Richard, how folks can keep in touch with you.
2: Yeah. Our, uh, you know, we have this long cumbersome name center for action and contemplation. So the, the, <laughs> every action, word's important <laughs> and the and is most important. Yeah. Uh, so our, our web, Address is cac.org dot org, and that sort of will tell you all that we're about. Well, let me just
1: encourage people to go there and sign up for the uh, daily meditations. Yeah. Because uh, every week somebody forwards me an email that came from the CAC. Said I just wanted to make sure you got this little gem <laughs> oh. from Father Richard. So I'm I'm always getting those forwarded to me, and I know they're a great gift to many many people. So. Uh, you, thank, you, you've thank. given us so much, and it's it's really nice that folks there are
2: getting it out to folks daily. If I've helped men like you or anybody, that makes me very happy.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Red Letter Christian Podcast. Prayer and action are like blades of scissors. They work best together. For more resources on prayer, check our website, redletterchristians.org or commonprayer.net. And please join us for morning prayer on the first day of each month at 9 a.m. Eastern Time.
2: Thank you for listening.